Tonight, we talk about Super Bowl madness in the church. That's right, in the church. And the He Gets Us ad gets it wrong. Taylor Swift is apparently a witch. I'll provide the details and you can decide for yourself. This is your favorite night of the week, the Deep End on Tim Hatch, live. Okay, welcome in everybody, and I'm so glad that you're here. And this is the weekly show where we talk about news of the day through a Christian worldview. And I'm your humble host here on the channel, Tim Hatch Live. My name is Tim. Welcome in to Deep End Season 7, Episode 16. And I hope that you are having a wonderful Tuesday night. I wish we had the Monday after Super Bowl off. That should be like, you know, a national holiday or a federal holiday. You know, we have Martin Luther King Day. We have President's Day. We have July 4th. Super Bowl Monday, right? Because my son stayed up all night for the overtime Kansas City Chiefs defeat of the San Francisco 49ers. And then the domino effect as a parent, he wakes up in a bad mood and it's hard to get him to school the next day. Let's have the Monday after Super Bowl off. Amen. Thumbs up in the chat if you agree. <laughs> but we got to talk about how the Super Bowl and the church are fighting this weird little marriage all of a sudden. And that brings me to Deep End News. Deep, 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 deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So yeah, I want to talk to you about the Super Bowl-based church. And what do you mean by the Super Bowl-based church? I'm talking about these churches that have decided to leverage the Super Bowl to accomplish the very Holy Spirit-saturated mission of reaching people for Jesus. Now, what happened over the weekend was a bunch of large churches decided to use a tactic that I guess we can still refer to as seeker-sensitive church growth movement tactics to bring in non-believers into the church who they believe are genuine seekers of spiritual truth. And if you just entertain them with Super Bowl nonsense during service, they would be more amenable to receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, just like Jesus drew it up in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, yeah, this is the history of the church in the last 40 years, for those of you who do not even know what I'm talking about, the seeker-sensitive movement believes, number one, that people are genuine seekers of God, and it's our job to get all the nonsense out of the way so they can find him. Uh, number two, they believe that this is a tactic that is going to produce actual disciples of Jesus ready to give up their lives for the mission of the gospel. And then number three, they believe that their man-made tactics are enough to manipulate or convince people that they are depraved sinners who are in desperate need of a uh, sinless Savior who came and shed his blood for the removal of their sins. Of course, in the seeker-sensitive movement, you cannot mention the blood of Jesus because that also is very offensive to non-believers. Just tell them all the cool things that Jesus said, how he was down with sinners and he wore long hair and sandals, and everybody will get along fine. The problem is, is that the, the seeker-sensitive movement isn't spiritual because no one seeks God. Romans 3.11 says that. And if you try to convince non-believers to be believers because your church is cool, you will only end up with false believers who eventually fall off in the long run. Believe me, I've tried this tactic and I found out the hard way that when you attract non-believers and never confront them with the reality of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you only get false believers who are just hanging on for the good times. And when the good times get tough, as they always do in church life or in life in general, they will fall off the wagon. Trust me, I've seen it happen hundreds of times. And thirdly, the seeker-sensitive movement gets it wrong because only the gospel, as Romans 1.16 says, has the power of God to save. And the gospel is the bad news. You are a sinner doomed to hell and judgment. And only Christ, the good news, can save you, and it's free. But you must repent 
You must turn from your ways and you must seek the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith completely in him, thus surrendering all rights to who you are, to who he wants you to be. The seeker-sensitive movement is still hanging on, however, in many, many churches. And so churches decided to bring the Super Bowl into their Sunday services. They went to work with creative arts departments across the nation to make sure everyone knew how badly people needed Christ by exalting a Super Bowl Sunday game. Again and again and again, there was plenty of fodder on social media, including this pastor standing with his <laughs> for this first lady Super Bowl ready, all dressed up in 49ers gear, and all over the nation, nonsense ensued on Sunday morning services, including this big one, where a Bible, I kid you not, at Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, this is led by Pastor Brian Tome, ha- was a Bible was punted across the stage. Now, I don't want to disparage the whole church, and I don't want to disparage Brian Tome. I actually have great respect for Brian Tome. I believe he's a great leader and a good preacher, but sometimes I think he goes too far. I mean, he had a powerful illustration with this horse being broken live on stage to illustrate how we need to be, you know, disciplined and follow Jesus to to grow to go further in our lives with God. It was a beautiful illustration, but I think this is going too far. This is trying too hard, and it comes off as nonsense. Here is the, the video. Tom wins the toss, chooses to receive the Bible. Patterson back with the kick. Ready for it? This is ugly to watch. It's a Bible. Oh my goodness! I don't know. What, what's the deal here? Why are we kicking Bibles across the stage? Later in the service, I kid you not, a guy decided to reenact Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball video. Thankfully, he was fully clothed and <laughs> swinging through the worship environment. I, I, I mean, I get it. I understand. Because when I hear people's testimonies of life change, when I hear people tell me how they came to Christ, it does often lead back to the wrecking ball moment during a megachurch worship service. So just so you know, and you see it, because I had to see it, here is the video. Yikes. But this is the state of the megachurch movement in our country, the seeker-sensitive movement, which is based on bad biblical interpretation about the human condition, about sin, about repentance, about salvation, about grace, uh, and now tries to marry with the world in every way, shape, and form, and tries to win, I don't know, fans to the movement of Jesus. Hey, listen, Jesus does not look for fans. He looks for followers. Followers are people who lay down their lives. Fans want Jesus to improve their lives. Jesus did not necessarily come to improve your life in the way that you think improvement needs to happen. Improvement will happen. You will be sanctified. You will be made holy. You will be made more fit for his services, but it might not be what you want it to be. And in the vein of being a disciple of Jesus, don't try to be a fan. Fans come and go. Be a follower. Followers, let go and let Jesus be Lord of all. Way back in the 1800s, a pastor in London named Charles Spurgeon said the following, Do not go where it is all fine music and grand talk and beautiful architecture. These things will neither fill anybody's stomach nor feed his soul. Go where the gospel is preached, the gospel that really feeds your soul. 
and go often. Amen, Charles Spurgeon. Man, 200 years ago, and he saw the same temptations that we see in this country today when it comes to trying to win the loss to Jesus Christ through less than biblical means. It's, ama- it's amazing. I mean, who's he talking about? He's not talking about us today. He was talking about in his days. And sure, there were churches in London filled with beautiful architecture and fine music and grand talk, but they weren't winning people to Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Preach the truth, and the people who know the truth and follow the truth will come to the truth and receive the truth and love the truth. Charles Spurgeon also is very famously known for saying a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And sadly, that is where we are. I really do have a, 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 a an understanding, I guess a sympathy for the pastors like this because I thought that we should do that at one point in my church and we did all kinds of crazy nonsense and it was stupid. I realized real quick, you know what the word sanctuary means? It means you have a sanctuary from the things that you are usually involved in. You have a sanctuary. So the church is meant to be a place where people can come out of the world, where they can kind of, you know, get away from all the crazy and the kook that is happening on a regular basis in this world, in this country, and just say yes to Jesus and time with him and surrender that hour and a half to two hours to the Lord, focusing their hearts on things above and not on things below. Anyway, that's my take on Super Bowl Sunday, getting way too much in the super churches of our country. Find a church that preaches the truth, verse by verse in many cases, and tells you about Jesus. Let's talk about, though, something else about the Super Bowl. That is the He Gets Us ad. Yes, so there was uh, another Christian component to Super Bowl weekend, and that is this, the He Gets Us ad that was, I think, $20 million worth of advertisement during the Super Bowl, and we're going to do a deep deep end detection, investigation, there we go, on where the money comes from and what this ad is all about, because it has caused a lot of controversy. It has stirred a lot of people up, and I want to talk about it here on the show. So let's first watch the ad, and then uh, we will talk about it. Watch. So we have foot washing, and you would see these people, I guess, people from very different walks of life, police officer, gang member maybe, um, a girl in high school with a different girl in high school, a uh, white man to a Native American, uh, a woman with a, I guess, a pre-abortion or post-abortion patient, and then that touching daughter-to-mother moment, a white woman to an immigrant or migrant, another white woman to a maybe Muslim refugee, And then a priest washing the feet of a transgender. Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us. All of us. Jesus. He gets us.com slash love your neighbor. So the question is, what is going on with this ad? This is also a holdover from the seeker sensitive movement because the seeker sensitive movement lives to to preach what people already believe, okay? So it's not really preaching because preaching confronts people with what they believe and challenges what they believe. That's that's preaching, right? We, 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 Peter doesn't get up on the day of Pentecost and say, hey, 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 guys, guys, you killed Jesus, um, but we know your hearts were in the right place. So 
Let's take a look, see at what he talked about, about, you know, how we got to love our neighbor, you know, we got to be nice to each other. And so let's all just kind of like kumbaya and close in a song. We can all kind of live in peace and harmony. No, he gets up and he says, you crucified the Lord of glory with your wicked hands. But God is raised from the dead. We are witnesses and you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says they were cut to the heart, which means that their beliefs were challenged. What they held inside was literally ripped out of them, and the Holy Spirit does a regenerative work inside of them and makes them new people. So the, the he gets us at is, no, we're not going to take that tactic. We're not going to do biblical stuff. We're going to do, again, seeker-sensitive stuff. So let's take a look-see. Again, pictures. We've got a girl probably at an abortion clinic here, family clinic, family, family planning clinic, being washed, her feet being washed by a Christian woman probably, and then again the the migrant or the refugee being washed by a white, probably Christian woman, and then the priest. I said transgender, but it could just be a gay man. It looks like Huntington Beach in California. I've been there, and uh, the images here are just sending one message: like this is what Jesus would do. Jesus would wash the feet of those he disagrees with, and the. Bottom line passage of scripture that seeker-sensitive churches or seeker-friendly churches use to justify these actions is from 1 Corinthians 9, 22 to 23, where Paul says, to the weak I became the weak, to win the weak, to the strong I became the strong, to those not under the law became as one not under the law. Then he says, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share them, share with them in his, in his blessings. Now, what Paul says there is absolutely true. Christians do have to go where people are. Like Jesus doesn't say, um, come to church. He says, you are my church. Go to the world. Go and be witnesses of all uh, of my word to all nations and make disciples of every nation and teach them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. That's Matthew chapter 28. So we're supposed to go to the lost. And yeah, if you're going to go to Peru, you better learn the language. If you're going to go to Mexico, you better learn the language. If you're going to go to Russia, learn the language. Yes, you have to kind of inhabit the places where you are bringing the gospel. I always tell leaders in my church, if you were going to be a missionary in oh, let's just say Uzbekistan, what would be the first thing that you would learn? Well, you would learn their language and then you would learn their values and then they would you would learn their, you know, cultic practices as a culture. You would learn what their high holidays are. You would learn what they, you know, celebrate. And then you would try to leverage and bring the gospel to bear in those areas of their life so that you can tell them about Jesus. So that actually is a very noble way to be a witness for Christ, and it's actually a very biblical way to be a witness for Christ. However, here, I think, is where we have to critique the He Gets Us ad with, with, with the following question. Does following Christ mean Christians wash the feet of strangers and randos in their world? Like, like is that what we're supposed to do? So some young girl is watching this ad on television, and maybe she lives in a suburb of L.A., and she says, you know what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to the skid row, and I'm going to wash some drug addict's feet. After all, that's what Jesus would do. So this poor girl goes down there, and she, I don't know, who knows what happens? Anything could happen. Maybe she dies. I don't know. The point is, we, we, we have to ask ourselves, is this what Jesus meant when he talked about washing people's feet? as they say in the Super Bowl, let's let's do a a review. The, the, the play is under review, okay? So let's go and run back the tape 
of John 13. This is the moment where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's at the Last Supper. He is about to be arrested. Judas is about to leave. And yes, he does wash Judas's feet. Let's look at it. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now look at that passage. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is the descriptor. During supper, this is him loving his own. When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, arose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel tied around his waist. Okay, so the mental processes of the Lord are he knows that he loves these guys, and now he has to kind of show them what the cross and the resurrection are going to accomplish for them. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he'd come from God and he was going back to God. That, that, that's, that's, de that's death, burial, resurrection, because on the resurrection morning, he tells Mary, don't touch me, I'm going to your Father and my Father, your God and my God, right? So he's, this is the context in Jesus' mind. I am about to cleanse people whom I love, whom the Father has given me, of all their sins. Judicially, before the Father, after this work is accomplished, they will be holy in my sight, in the Father's eyes. That's the thinking. Now let's go on. Verse eight, verse five. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, the reason why Peter is objecting to this is because it was a slave's job. It was the lowest person's person in the house's job to wash other people's feet. Verse seven, Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Okay, now, now, now that's key because Peter needs to come to a realization of this action in understanding. So the action is more than just serving Peter by taking the position of a slave because he's going to understand it later. Now look what it says. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Whoa! This is bigger than just Jesus modeling servant, as much as it is Jesus modeling servanthood within the church because he loved his own. Okay, back to verse one. It's bigger than that because Jesus makes it very clear. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Well, obviously Jesus is not saying, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Jesus is talking about something much bigger. The substitutionary atoning work that he will accomplish on the cross, bringing his shed blood to the heavenly temple, presenting it before the Father, and saying, seeing it received for the forgiveness of the sins of all those who would come to Jesus Christ, to God through Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is talking about. Not the physical act of just washing Peter's feet. And again, Peter doesn't understand it all yet because he's not yet saved just yet. He will be on the resurrection morning. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was, who, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now they were saved. I said they weren't saved, but they were saved in the sense that they were following Jesus and believing him. But they were not judicially saved in the sense that the heavenly court had pronounced them guiltless and, and, and um, 
and righteous before the Father. When Jesus rises from the dead, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, because they were then at that point able to receive the Holy Spirit because they were at that point judicially made righteous and holy by Jesus' shed blood sacrifice. But what he says here to Peter is, I'm not washing all of you. I'm going to wash your feet to completely clean you because my, now again, the work of the cross will presents you holy before the Father, but every Christian knows this. After you get saved, you still sin. First John 1, 7, if we say we have no sin, we make him out to be, the liar, be a liar, and the truth is not in us. So there's still residual effects of sin. There's still residual effects of life. As in the New Testament world in which Jesus was living, you would uh, bathe in the morning and then you would have sandals on your feet and walk through the dust and then you would have dirty feet and you would go to people's houses and they would show you honor and show you respect by washing your feet if you came in. A slave of the house would do that. What Jesus is saying to this, saying this, I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to give you a full bath. But your feet are still going to get dirty. Christians, you're still going to get dirty. Sin's still going to have a hold on you. But Jesus is committed. This is, the, this is the best part. Jesus is committed to completely cleansing you. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, so, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that, I should, that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, this is the mandate for which many people believe in, in Christian history that we should literally wash people's feet, but that is not what Jesus is saying because we don't do it. <clears throat> we don't wash each other's feet. And, and, and frankly, let me just be honest with you. I never want you to touch my feet. <laughs> my feet are gross. Um, it's embarrassing. It's kind of awkward. I mean, this is cultural, okay? But the cultural reality of Jesus' day is pointing to a spiritual reality that he wants us all to participate in. And that is, number one, serving each other for the sake of sanctification. Let me, let me say that again. Christians are to wash each other's feet in the sense that we serve one another, serve other Christians for the sake of their sanctification. How does that happen? Well, if I preach the gospel to people in the church, if I preach the word, I am sanctifying their minds through the renewal of their minds, through the preaching of the word, and they're becoming more and more like Jesus through the preaching of the word. Anybody who helps me do that on Sunday, anybody who helps the church do that on Sunday, welcome people, greet people, um, train their children, raise their children, uh, teach their children about Jesus. That is all a sanctifying work on the Sunday morning experience. Then if you have a small group or a life group, and then you get together and you talk about scripture and you talk about Jesus and you bear each other's burdens and you pray for each other and you counsel each other and you, you know, admonish each other and exhort each other, you are serving one another in what? Sanctification. You see, sanctification is not just something supernatural that happens with the Holy Spirit. It happens relationally as the Holy Spirit binds the body of Christ together, serving one another in love and seeing each other walk away from sin. As Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, if any one of you is caught in a sin, let those who are spiritual seek to restore him. That is a sanctifying work. That is a foot washing work, spiritual foot washing of another Christian, trying to bring them out of the worldliness that gets up on their feet because though they are saved, they still need more cleansing and perfecting. As Philippians chapter one says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, how does he do that? Through relationships with other Christians, you see? So now back to the advertisements. The advertisement suggesting that this is what Jesus would have done. He would have gone to random strangers who totally disagree with him on the streets and washed their feet. No, 
That's not what Jesus did. Did Jesus serve people who were far from God? Absolutely. But he did so to bear witness that his word was true, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that he was the only way to the Father. In fact, at one point he said, you know what? No more miracles because you're not receiving the word. The word is what purifies us. The word is what brings us back to God. The word is what... um, Uh, cleanses our minds and opens our heart to God. And ultimately, that is what Jesus came to do for God's people. It is a, the, the, the act of washing one another's feet is the act of spiritually sanctifying one another for the perfecting of their faith. Let me give you another passage of scripture that under, uh, uh, underlies all that I'm talking about. First Timothy chapter five, verse nine says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Notice the list of details that a widow must complete in order to be on the list to receive help in Paul's mind when he counsels uh, Pastor Timothy in Ephesus on what to do with widows who deserve help and widows who should probably not get help. Well, number one of the things is that she should have washed the feet of, of who? Of who? Of the saints. Wash the feet of the, the saints. Sinners don't need their feet washed. This is the big point. Sinners don't need their feet washed. They need their bodies washed. And I'm talking about their spiritual bodies. They need the truth of the gospel, in some cases, hitting them right here, convicting them, showing them the error of their ways, not in a seeker-sensitive kind of, you know, motivational Tony Robbins-esque speech, but in a way that makes clear, apart from Christ, you are condemned in, you are lost in your own sins but through Christ you are cleansed, brought near to the Father, and freed from the power and the penalty of sin. Sinners don't need us to go out to randos and wash their feet. They'll probably be like, what the heck? I already think you Christians are weird enough. Now you're going to take my shoes off and wash my... I don't think they want any part of that. And, 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 and it would just be a kind of like a virtual signaling kind of move. No, washing each other's feet is reserved for those who have already been saved and born again and brought into the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, what about Judas? He was there. Yes. And Jesus knew exactly who he was. He washed his feet, but then immediately he said, now go do what you got to do with his washed feet, unwashed physical, um, unwashed spiritual soul and unwashed spiritual feet. He walked over to the Pharisees and Sadducees and and rulers and sold Jesus out. Just because he washed that one sinner's feet was not the the, uh, impetus behind us washing all kinds of other sinners' feet. He told them clearly at the Last Supper, do this for each other. Serve one another for the sake of sanctifying one another, bringing each other closer to Jesus. Got it? I hope that helps. Let me know in the comments. Any more questions? Would love to answer them. Maybe in 10 questions with Tim. We also have to follow the money with He Gets Us. This is from the Evangelical Dark Web website. And it says this, He Gets Us exposed the money and marketing behind the $20 million Super Bowl ads. The creative team behind commercials includes David Mooring and Ryan Beals. 
The trite Jesus is a refugee messaging was written by them along with the 2023 Super Bowl spots. These are the last year's Super Bowl spots, by the way, for He Gets Us. These commercials are the ideas. The commercials are then filmed by Dottore Mayo. David Morin went to BYU, indicating that he's probably a Mormon. Ryan Beals is a liberal who hates Trump and is pro-abortion. The creative teams behind a marketing campaign are not Bible-believing Christians. David Green, the founder and owner of Hobby Lobby, went from fighting the Obama administration on his abortion-efficient requirements to paying pro-abortion creatives to market Jesus. Naturally, they would create a version of Jesus that's palpable or palatable to their proclivities. It goes on. It says, also on the team is John Lee, who wrote a piece for Outcomes Magazine to promote the campaign. The research is very clear. Non-Christians are attracted to the story of Jesus and the ideas he taught, but they don't perceive Christians as representing his values and thus don't see the story of Jesus as particularly relevant to or valuable for their lives. Instead of seeing Jesus as a real person who loved all unconditionally and who demonstrated unending grace and forgiveness, they see him as... A fairy tale of unattainable perfection, and instead of seeing Christians representing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they ex- control. They experience Christians as judgmental, oppressive, hypocritical, power-hungry, political ideologues with a superiority complex. Lee's words are reminiscent of Vanderground believing that Christians are the problem with Christianity. Lee suggests that they need to relate to Jesus in order to value to find value in Him. Christ was fully man and God. The value that He became man. To bear the sins, the value is that he became man to bear the sins of the world and offers hope for eternal life and restoration. People do not want to admit that they are wretched sinners before an almighty God. $100 million is not going to overcome the ultimate objection to Jesus. Uh, It goes on here, especially if the campaign doesn't ever address the total depravity of man. Okay, the quote there by John Lee, so important. The research is very clear. Non-Christians are attracted to the story of Jesus, but they don't like Christians. I hate that. I hate that philosophy. I honestly can't stand it. Yes, there are bad Christians. Do you know why? Because everybody's bad. Everybody is still sin. They still need their feet washed, okay? And we cannot relate to sinners by projecting, of course, that we are perfect. No, under no circumstances are we perfect. And we do need to have a heart of mercy and grace toward outsiders 100%. And I grew up in a very legalistic, judgmental, condescending church, and I have experienced it firsthand. I get it. However... Christians are not the problem with Christianity. Do you know why? Because Jesus is using Christians to spread Christianity. Uh, He's been doing it for 2,000 years, and he's still going to do it until he comes again. He trusts Christians. He loves Christians. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that he loves the bride he washes her. He cleanses her through the renewal of her of her heart, through the through washing of water, through her through the word. Um, no one loves Christians more than Jesus. So I I really have a hard time with the ling- the lingo of oh the problem with Christianity is Christians. No, it's not. A few Christians are very problematic, absolutely. But all Christians are still sinful and need their feet washed. But they are still the people that Jesus has chosen to use to bring other people into the faith. Now, there is nothing more attractive than a Christian that is full of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit and genuinely loves people far from God. And I seek to be that kind of person. In fact, I hope that you pray this on a regular basis in your life. Father, help me to love someone far from you today with the love of Jesus. And that should be a prayer of every Christian. But but so often, the church, feeling ashamed of being the church, decides to become very worldly, you know, 
They don't necessarily sin, but they kick Bibles and they copy Miley Cyrus in, a chant, in an effort to say, we're not as bad as you think. And in the end, we just kind of look silly. We just look silly. And the church doesn't deserve that. The, 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 the body of Christ does not deserve to look silly. It should look serious. It, it should look um, down to earth, but at the same time at peace because they know who they are in Christ Jesus. And they have a love for lost people because God loved them. And they don't need to trick people. They don't need to entertain people into this movement. They just need to be genuine followers of Jesus who have a genuine concern for their neighbors. There was one other Christian ad, and I want to play it, is the Mark Wahlberg Hallow App ad. And I have to say, I love this ad. Watch. God, we take this moment just to give you thanks. We thank you for this time to come together as a family, as friends, and as a country. Help us, Lord, especially this Lent, to grow closer to you. Amen. Join us in prayer this Lent on Hallow. Stay prayed up. Beautiful. I mean, I... <laughs> what do we do as Christians? We pray. What do we do as Christians? We give up things. We say yes to the Lord. We open our hearts to Him. And as Catholics, I, <laughs> I hate to say it, but they beat us. Oh, they beat us this Super Bowl. Catholics won. Super Bowl, what was it, 58, 57? I, I'm not keeping track anymore. Ever since the Patriots became a terrible team, I don't keep track anymore. <laughs> oh, that's where we are. And so a Super Bowl that was saturated with um, a lot of Christian content in the commercials was also saturated with some Christian moments in the halftime show. Here's Usher. But if you do call, know that God answers prayers. They said I wouldn't make it. They said I wouldn't be here today, but I am. Hey, mama, we made it. Now this... So I think nothing sums up the state of modern Christianity better than Usher talking about the Lord who answers prayer. And now he gets to stand on the stage and sing the song, Let's Make Love in This Club, because his prayers were answered to God. Wow. You know what the Super Bowl has taught me? Weak-willed secular Christianity abounds in our culture. And we've just got to get back. We've got to get back to just, you know, being simple in our faith, loving the Lord, loving one another, and helping grow each other closer and closer to Jesus. Okay, let's do a, a deep end follow-up because last week I talked about Taylor Swift's version of Christianity, also a very weak-willed version of Christianity. And I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Con Let me just tell you, I don't want to do this content. My team kept telling me, you got to do this content. You got to do it. Yeah. And I said, no, no, no. I don't want to sound like Dana Carvey's church lady, but I have to show you some details. I have to give it to you. I know there's people you watch, you got Taylor Swifties in your house. You got kids who love her, but there's some stuff you need to see. So if you were watching the NFL uh, game on Sunday, the camera showed Taylor Swift no less than 12 times in her luxury box during the game. And, uh, you can get mad about it all you want, but it's now she's a fixture, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, in football. Let's do a deep end follow up. The, the, the deep, deep end follow up. Okay, before you think I'm all crazy and nuts, here's the bottom line as to why they showed Taylor Swift so much. Ratings, people. 
Super Bowl, yeah, it was 58. Okay. Sets TV ratings record with 123 million viewers. Friends, that's why. <laughs> because the God of this world is not Satan in unbelievers' mind. It's money. Now, we know the God of this world is Satan, and he'll use money to mislead non-believers. But at the end of the day, what America worships, what most non-believers worship, is money. And so uh, the NFL producers, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, he knew what he was doing. Let's get this girl flown in as quick as possible from her concert in Japan. Let's make sure she is in sight of a camera and let's show her off to the millions of fans who will tune in, many of which were Swifties and probably never would have watched the Super Bowl if it wasn't for Taylor Swift being on the premises. And people say this is a PSYOP. It's not a PSYOP. It's capitalism at its best. Yes, young people who will attend college and be told how evil capitalism in America are. Well, you're one big fat hypocrite if your heart fluttered every time Taylor Swift was on screen. And by the way, I have to say, how unfair that the Swifties got a Super Bowl championship only three months into their fandom when the poor fans of the Detroit Lions have been waiting for 80 stinking years and still have nothing. (sighs) But this is my concern. Is Taylor Swift a witch? Again, I did not want to do this, but I have some things to show you. Here she is celebrating a Kansas City victory or touchdown. I don't know where this was in the show. But you see the girl with the curly orange hair? Is that orange hair? Yeah, that's Ice Spice. And Ice Spice made some interesting hand gestures while Taylor Swift chugged a beer. On the right, Taylor Swift chugging a beer, proving that she is an everyman or every woman. But watch the girl here with the upside-down cross around her neck. That's Ice Spice. I guess she's an artist as well, music artist as well. With the devil horns hands right there. And then she kind of tugs on the inverted cross. Occultic symbols abounding at the big game. What gives? Those gestures are pretty overt. And notice that she does it. Back to the screen here. When she notices that the cameras, she's looking at a TV monitor in the luxury box. And let me play it again. And then she decides, ooh, 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 let me throw out my devil horns and, and just bring note, attention to my inverted cross. That, that's interesting. You know, I know who you are from your friends. Um, evidently, too, there's a song that Taylor Swift uh, uh, performs in her era's tour called Willow. And I guess there's some fans that say some of the demons when the when the song starts. Here's the video of that song, Willow. And I don't have the sound up for obvious reasons because I do not want to get flagged. Um, but basically, a lot of here, a lot of coven witch themes go into this song as she, you know, walks amongst this mystical mythical garden, foresty kind of figure. And then, uh, you know, the typical Taylor Swift song, she sees a guy, he doesn't act right. Then she's got all kinds of issues and maybe she goes and joins other witches in summoning up some spirits to go get the guy who had the audacity not to treat her right. You know, basic stock and trade of a Taylor Swift song. The uh, lyrics of the song are the fo- as follows. Life was a willow and it bent right to your wind Head on the pillow, I can feel you sneaking in as if you were a mythical thing, like you were a trophy or a champion ring. Hmm. 
But there was one prize I'd cheat to win. Huh. At the concert, she begins with the line, wait for the signal, they'll meet you after dark. Uh, I'm just going to put the words of the song and these pictures up on the screen without comment. Yes, I'm still here. <laughs> Cheat to win. Championship ring. Yeah, Joe Biden's uh, PR team or social media team said, tweeted out just like we drew it up right after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl and Taylor Swift kissed, tri- kissed Travis Kelsey. Uh, yeah, a lot of weird things that we could speculate about this, but let me get away from conspiracy tin hat territory and go back to Taylor Swift being a witch. Here she is tweeting out, witches be like, sometimes I just want to listen to music while pining away, sulking, staring out a window. It's me. I'm witches. Never fear. The willow lonely witch remix is here. Here she is tweeting out, never beating the sorcery allegations, uh, a picture of her singing behind a piano with a lot of, you know, I guess that's kind of witch imagery there with all the flowers. I don't know why flowers are witchy imagery. I don't know what that's all about. But here's another tweet. Again, you be the decider. What a truly mind-blowing thing you've turned the Eras Tour concert film into. I've been watching videos of you guys in theaters, dancing and prancing and recreating choreography, creating inside jokes, casting spells, getting engaged, and just generally creating the exact type of joyful chaos we're known for so recreating choreography creating inside jokes casting spells just kind of like flippantly added to the list of things that she wants her people to be her fans to be a part of you have a couple of options here and i hate conspiracy theories but let's be honest as the last five years have taught me the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth is about six months So you have a couple of options. Number one, she's definitely into witchcraft and such things, and she should be avoided at all costs if you have any young children in your house or any young girls particularly, because I think it's a bad influence. Or number two, she's just an artist who likes to incorporate this type of imagery into her content and shows. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to let you decide. You're a grown-up. You can make this decision, and if you have children in the house, you need to make decisions that are in line with your Christian values. But what I cannot tolerate for Christians is how willingly you will pay tons of money to Taylor Swift and then complain when the church needs a roof and the pastor tries to raise money for it. I'm not speaking about that from experience. I've just heard stories. But here are some other news items that might be of interest to you. Taylor Swift, this is from LifeSite News. Taylor Swift, obviously, quote, obviously I support abortion. I can't believe people want to protect unborn children. Another article says, Taylor Swift, I'm a Christian and people with real Christian values support abortion. Uh, This video that is actually, I'm not going to show the video, but there is a video where she informs her parents that she will be backing a left-wing pro-abortion Senate candidate in Tennessee in 2018. The Democrat was named Phil Bresden. He eventually lost to uh, Republican Marsha Blackburn because Marsha Blackburn uh, ran on a very pro-life platform. In the video, Taylor Swift excoriates both her parents and those with pro-life views in Tennessee as, quote, not truly Christian, end quote. And this all backs up what we were talking about last week on the deep end. Like I said, this is a follow-up. She said, it's kind of hard to be like, well, church said this, but I feel this way. My friends, the most dangerous demons in the world, the most dangerous people in the world are not unbelievers and are not outright demonic people. It's the people who claim to be like Christ and are nothing like him, who say they follow Jesus and believe the exact opposite of what he stood for and what he believed. It's the people like that. 
that I have a concern for in this world. You need to do the research. That's what I hear, that's what we're here for on the deep end. And you need to get the facts. By the way, the Taylor Swift class at Harvard. We found this out. Oh my friends, you will not believe who teaches the Taylor Swift course at Harvard University. What has happened to higher education? Watch this video. Professor Stephanie Burt, a diehard Taylor Swift fan herself, is teaching an English literature class about the megastar at Harvard University. We're looking at, at Taylor Swift's work and career. That's Stephanie Burt. <laughs> of course. And the works of art around that. Nearly 300 students signed up for her class. You can teach one subject in school, what would it be? English. <laughs> I think the kind of atmosphere in the class is very joyous. I'm taking it with a couple of friends, and the first day when we walked in, we could not stop laughing out of the sheer amazement that we were able to take this class at Harvard for credit. I'm amazed too. Posting that TikTok was very interesting. And there were a lot of people saying that this class should not be taught at Harvard, that um, our education system is failing us. Taylor Swift isn't a serious songwriter, and why are you doing this? And it, you know, you've brought down the institution. That's just silly. Professor Burt says that Taylor's songwriting and lyrics. Okay, just look at Professor Burt here. This is a man masquerading as a, not just a woman, but it looks like a 17, 16 year old woman with the high knee leather, knee high leather boots and the tank top. I mean, just gross, honestly, just gross. But what you would expect from Harvard today, who has abandoned all truth and morality in favor of progressive woke theology. And it is a sign of the times. It is exactly what Jesus said would happen to the world. Confusion would abound, lawlessness would increase, and love of most would grow cold. So they teach kids about Taylor Swift. And not math, <laughs> because I'm going to conclude the free content tonight with this girl's estimation of how Elon Musk could really change things in this world. Watch. There's 10 billion people on Earth, and Elon Musk has $200 billion. Can't he just give each person $1 billion? <laughs> and the video goes on. I don't have the whole video. And she goes, I bet he would still have $190 billion left over. So... Hmm, 10 billion people, $1 billion each, only would subtract from his billionaire wealth $10 billion. So I, this is what happens when you teach about Taylor Swift, but you don't teach about math. By the way, if you're wondering, there's the answer. And no one has that much money. No one at all. Oh, I said I was going to end with that. No, got more on Taylor Swift. She also attended a comedy night for a Gaza charity. The charity that, that was donated to was called Anera. And this is a char charity that is very, very controversial. This is a statement from its president and CEO in which they say, shame on the world, shame on the Israeli government, which has been ordered by the ICJ to permit more aid. Shame on the United States government. Shame on everyone who needs to do more. We must scale and speed up aid, food, medicine, shelter, and more for the Gazan refugees or the Gazan people. Uh, she does not support Israel as far as I can tell, but that is where she is on that issue as well. And this is your choice. You get to decide because you're a grown up and I've just shared with you the details as to what's been happening 
with Taylor Swift. And her influence on our young is disconcerting if you ask me. But hey, who am I? I'm just the host of this great show, The Deep End. Thanks for joining us, by the way. If you haven't heard, the Dependables membership plans are available. And we've got people signing up every week. The basic, the standard, the premium, the legacy. I also just revealed to our legacy partners, the $60 a month people, that I will be handcrafting some personal gifts for you in the near weeks. If you didn't watch the extra content that was already posted to the Patreon last night, check it out. You will see an example of that stuff because I value you so much. Join the Patreon community over at patreon.com slash timhatchlive. And again, when you support us, we support Project Rescue and American Bible Society. And if you're not interested in any of that, or maybe you're also interested in that, but you're going to go to the swag shop, timhatchlive.com slash shop. Thanks for being here, guys, tonight. we got a lot to talk about on the extra content, particularly about the the, the, uh, shooting at Lakewood Church, uh, Joe Biden's uh, mental acuity, and a bunch of other content. Join today over on patreon.com slash timhatchlife to check that out. Other than that, have a good night. God bless. (laughs) 